Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Uh, we are six weeks into a series through the book of uh, 1 John or 1 John, um, and we are really uh, excited about that. Um, the series that we're doing is called Proof of Life, and that's because all throughout uh, the book of 1 John, uh, the, the Apostle John, the author of this book, gives us several proofs or tests that we really are Christian, that we really are of the faith, proofs of the life that is in us through Christ. Um, And so tonight we are looking at what it actually means to be a child of God. Who is a child of God? And the theme of 1 John, specifically here in this text, is that the end is drawing near. Jesus is coming back and the end of the age is coming. And so John's encouragement to the church in all of this that's going on is to to abide in Jesus, is the term he uses. So to remain in Jesus, to live in Jesus. And last week we saw that John encouraged us in that by reminding Christians that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, has already saved them. The word lives in them and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So for Christians here, the Word lives in us, the Gospel lives in us, Jesus lives in us, and we follow His Word. Jesus lives in us, and in return, we follow Jesus. And how do we do that? We do that by obeying His Word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then tonight, we kind of build on that, and look more at that, and look at our uh, the fact that we are children of God, and we ask, well, why would we do that? Why would we live God's Word out? Because Jesus is going to return. And 1 John uses this term, and we'll get to the text in just a second, he uses this term, appears. John reminds us that Jesus is going to appear. In the original language, it has kind of the connotations or the, the air about it of like a king or a monarch who's been out of town coming back to visit his subjects. And the big idea, for those of you who are going to nod off because it's after five, is this. Those who are in Jesus are children of God being made like Jesus and that the king is coming back. And when he returns, we will either, either be found ready and waiting for him or we will kind of shrink back in shame and want to hide. So the text for tonight is, is 1 John 2, verses 28 to 3.10. And if you happen to have like a, a phone with a Bible app or you have a Bible in the pew, feel free to crack that out um, and follow along if you want as well. You can just listen. I'll be reading it out. Um, but we're in 1 John uh, chapter 2, 28 to 3.10. And it says this. And now, little children, abide in him, that's Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Now, I know that you probably either don't know me at all or know me a little bit or only know what I tell you about me. Um, 
But you, what you may not know is that I have not always been the upstanding gentleman you see standing before you. Uh, like all of you in this room, I had a childhood. Uh, and this may have happened to you the same way it happened to me, and I could say happened to me, but what I really mean is I did this, is that you know, you're living at home and your, your parents have gone out and you know that you're getting up to something that you shouldn't be doing. Has anyone else ever been there? Right, you're all kids. You were all kids once upon a time, good. Um, like, for example, perhaps you, you played a game of indoor hockey when you know that you probably shouldn't have and uh, you broke mum's vase that great-grandma gave her that is priceless, apparently. Um, she probably bought it at Priceline but didn't tell you that. Um, <laughs> it's priceless. And all of a sudden, just as you're kind of picking up the pieces of that and perhaps pulling out the superglue to kind of stick it all back together in the vowed attempt that she won't notice... Uh, they get back early. And you want to, in that moment, wish that the world would kind of open up and swallow you. You want to shrink back, melt into the ground and hide. Or is that just me? All right, so you know the feeling I'm talking about. John is encouraging us that Jesus, his return is imminent. And he doesn't want us to have that feeling when he returns, when King Jesus comes again. He doesn't want us to have that that sinking, shrinking back, wishing the couch would swallow me so that I could hide forever feeling. You know, kind of in flip to this, now this had never happened in my my childhood, perhaps it happened to you uh, if you were a good child, Uh, but perhaps your parents had been out and uh, while they had been out, you took it upon yourself to put down the Game Boy, because it's 1995, and pick up the broom and perhaps sweep the floor, and then you kind of hear the car like gently rolling into the driveway, and you're like, oh, they're home! And so you kind of gather yourself up and gather your smile up and stand in the entryway, probably like this, <laughs> waiting. And as they come to the door, you open it, and you're like, come in, and you want to throw your arms around. And so you have this kind of other attitude and other design. Now, that probably, that never happened when I was a kid. <laughs> but, but the idea here is, is we want to abide in Jesus or live in Jesus, remain in Jesus, so that when he returns, we have confidence. We, have, uh, we are joyful to see him. We're, we're not shrinking back or, or being ashamed at his coming. Because when Jesus returns, we will stand before God to give an account. So the scripture tells us. And we know that those who are in Christ will be judged according to Christ's perfection and not our own. So we know that in reality, all of us have made a mess of God's world. All of us have broken his Priceline vase. Um, accepting his is probably really an antique. Um, we know that all of us have made mistakes, stuffed things up, and that when we can, we can all stand before God, uh, not because of you know, we've swept the floor, metaphorically, but because Jesus has swept the floor, because Jesus has been the good child, because Jesus has done the good thing. We know that to be true. But this idea of giving an account should still scare us a little. We don't earn God's favour, we don't make him love us by being perfect children. Jesus was the only perfect child. But this idea that we are found in Christ, but yet still he is coming back and we give an account for our lives should perhaps cause us to pause and think for a moment. When Christ returns, 
What will you say? Uh, Sorry, I sinned so that grace could abound. I didn't worry about my own sanctification, my own making myself more like Jesus because I knew that, you know, you love me and we're all chill, right? Fist bump. It's just that I thought Jesus would take care of it for me. So, yeah, I didn't really bother trying to, you know, stop stealing from the boss at work because I thought, you know what, it's all right, I'm, I'm in Christ and I've got his righteousness, so I don't need to work on any of my own. Will we shrink back at his coming? I mean, we know we are secure in him and, and the fact that he was perfect and he's gifted that to us. But will we shrink back at our works, what we've done? Or will we be able to stand with confidence? Knowing that we have run the good race, knowing that we have... Uh, in Christ, live to please him. Jesus said something similar to his disciples uh, recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark about um, not being ashamed at his coming. He puts a a different uh, spin on it, talking about are we ashamed of him? Like for all those times that uh, we have not spoken of Jesus when we should have spoken of Jesus because we were worried about what people might think of us. Jesus says this, he says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is coming back. And the Gospel of John, he's, uh, the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, but the Apostle John is encouraging us to consider and to live in light of the fact that Jesus actually, his return is imminent. It's around the corner. And he does not want us to feel like we need to shrink back in shame. And John's words remind the church that they, in fact, actually can stand unashamed at Christ's second coming. This kind of uh, end of chapter 2, verse 28, uh, 29 it really sets us up for what comes next. And verse 29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He's really, in these two verses, saying, Watch out. Like, are you ready? You don't want to be ashamed. Do you practice righteousness? If you practice righteousness, you've been born of him. And he's really setting up what comes next. But I will get there. He says this, If a person does what is right, is righteous, practices righteousness... That's a sure sign of their new birth. That's a sure sign that they are in Christ. So do we believe in in a works righteousness? Do we believe we do good things and that makes us acceptable to God? No. We really don't want to believe that. We really don't want to teach that. We want to be unequivocal. No, we don't believe that you can ever, ever do enough to earn or merit 
God's salvation and his favour. So we want to say that this is a sign, not a cause. So the righteousness or the the, uh, practising of righteousness is a sign that we really are saved, that we really are born of God. The particular order that this is written in offers assurance to the children of God. Because for the child of God, faith precedes behaviour. But right behaviour, behaving righteously, is the natural result of faith in God. Hence, if you're a believer, you can be assured of your status before God if your lives are marked by a godly righteousness that's growing. Because only those who are truly saved will abide or live in him. Righteous living then, or living in a way like Jesus lived, it's an ethical or it's an outward expression of an already existing reality about our relationship with God. Our lives as God's children then reflect and resemble God's righteousness that he's given to us in Christ. We don't earn our salvation, but if God has really saved us, he will change us. Verse 3 says this, and this is, um, uh, this is I think, I wouldn't be wrong in saying my wife's favourite verse, and it's amazing. Verse uh, 3 here. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Just reading that um, as dry words doesn't convey the heart and and the, the, the oomph with which it's meant. This is meant to convey admiration and, in fact, astonishment. God's love astonishes, amazes and creates wonder in us if you reflect upon it properly. Uh, Does anyone here, uh, is anyone here lucky enough to own a house overlooking the sea or perhaps in the hills with a nice view? No. Perhaps you don't want to put it up your hand because we're all going to be like, we're going back to your house later. But we've all perhaps been in these houses. Um, And if you live in this house, or perhaps even if you uh, have a beautiful piece of artwork in your house, you could relate to this as well, um, you can develop a sense of meh to your beautiful view or the beautiful artwork that you have or even perhaps the lovely uh, 1969 Ford Mustang that's sitting in your driveway. After a while, you're like, meh. But, but if you uh, have one of these houses or have, uh, have something special, perhaps um, visitors who come round might walk into your lounge room, see the view and like have their nose against the glass. Oh. And you, you're kind of like, oh, that's right, there's a view there. 
I remember going around to my auntie's house and uh, she was in Hallett Cove and she had a house with this kind of view and you could see the boats coming up and down the gulf and I would kind of just sit there and be like, there's boats, there's boats, as only an eight-year-old can do. Um, But my cousins who live there, they're like, oh yeah, there's boats. They were used to it. And we can, the same thing can happen to us. We can harden our hearts towards the wondrous love that it is that we are children of God. And, and we aren't, if we aren't continually amazed at God's love, it's because we forget how wonderful it is and, and how utterly lost we would be without it. John here is trying to remind us, and in fact the way he writes this, and I think the way it, it probably should be read, and I probably even read it too dryly myself, is it should be read, read with this uh, sense of awe so that we don't become meh about it. One of the, the other translations of this says, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. And that word kind of lavished, is, it's not just a little bit of love just enough to to perhaps kind of get you into heaven, just enough to get you across the line. Like God said, well, you need five love points and I'm going to give you five because that'll get you in. No, he's like unlimited, lavished it upon you. It's so much and it's undeserved and we don't deserve this much love. I mean, God sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. It's that much love. The fact that you and I are children of God, we should never be meh about that. I mean, who are we? But we're like wretched, sinful people. We We don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve tomorrow. We don't deserve the sun to rise tomorrow. We don't deserve any of the good things we have. But yet, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and, and so we are. Now, some, some people hear this, and we're self-righteous, and we're like, that we should be called children of God, and they think to you, yeah, I should be called a child of God. Well, no, you don't deserve that. This is, this is a, a should be called children of God. That we should be, like, whoa. This isn't a I deserve this. This is a as if moment. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, has given to you. That you, you knowing all the times that, that you have pushed your mum's Priceline vase off the countertop, either literally or metaphorically, whatever else it is for you that you should be called a child of God when you have stuffed up so many times. There is no reason, there is nothing that you can do that you can kind of take to God the Father and present to him and be like, this is the reason you should love me. There is no amount of good works, there's no amount of charity work that you can do, there's no amount of being a nice person that you can present to God the Father and say, see, love me. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And yet see what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It goes on, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This, again, is amazing. Like, we are God's children now. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you have faith in him and he has saved you, you are God's child now. The creator of the universe, you are his child. And what's also amazing about that, that this scripture shows us, is that, in fact, you are still in process You are God's child. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God sees you, he sees you as spotless and clean like he sees Christ. And yet, you are still being made pure. You are still in process. And I think this can give us great hope for one another. I mean, just take a moment and look around the room and perhaps don't stare too long once you work out what I'm going to say. But look around the room and look at the people around you. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Now, perhaps you came with someone tonight, perhaps you came by yourself, perhaps you know a lot of people here, perhaps you know no one, but you can guarantee this, you know that the other people in this room are not perfect. Especially if you have been friends with them for more than a few minutes. You know that they're not perfect. You know that they've still got rough edges you know that they've still got things in their life that are not of God. You, I imagine, don't look at the other people in this room and think to yourself, you know what, that person is a perfect image of Christ. Not a single one of us has arrived yet. And that keeps us perhaps humble, but we are children of God and that gives us hope to keep on going. Someday we will see him as he is, see Jesus as he is and and he will make us pure. But in the meantime, God's love is transforming us. It changes us when we see him as he is. Uh, 2 Corinthians Uh, chapter 3 says that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And it's this idea that as we see Jesus for who he is, that is what transforms us. And so I banged on about this last week, so I'm not going to bang on about this too much this week, but it's as we see Jesus for who he really is that that is what will transform us. And that is why we get into the word, which is the message about who Jesus is, because we want to see more of him and more of who he is, because we can't make ourselves pure. We can't make ourselves love Jesus. It's only seeing Jesus for who he is that will transform us. And so we want to see more of Jesus. We want to see more of who he is, more of what he's like, more of his character, because it's in that that we'll be transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. Not because we try really, really hard. I mean, this is so encouraging because even, even in uh, 3 verse 1, 
when John called God the Father. We kind of just read over the top of that and it doesn't mean much to us. But he called God God the Father and not just God. It's a a reminder of those who are in Christ have that kind of intimate relationship with him. To abide or to be one with him means that we will be treated as he was treated. To be a child of God means that his children will be treated as he is treated. And so rather than complain about that, if you do suffer, we should rejoice because it gives us the assurance that we really are his children. And the other kind of great hope we have in here is that what we will be has not yet appeared. We have a future hope. When you look around the room and see all those other imperfect people, and in fact, when they look back at you and see you in your imperfection, our great hope is that what we will be is not yet. I mean, I know my own self and my own sinfulness, and I think, if this is it, it's not very good. (laughs) That's That's not hope for me. Through Christ and the work he's doing in my life, Um, I am changing, I'm growing, but i I still got a lot of rough edges. And if I had arrived and I had made it and this was it, I'm pretty disappointed. But the great hope that we have is there is a thing yet to come. What we will be has not appeared yet. And being born of God gives us a great hope. And it's in this great hope that he is coming again, that he will transform us, that informs and changes how we live now. It is that the Christians, that the Christian's pattern of life to pursue holiness and purity as we await our blessed hope, which is the return of our Saviour. We are so loved. And if you are a child of God, you have been radically transformed. If you are a child of God, you are becoming a man or woman who thinks and acts like Jesus. That is what God is working in your life if you're a Christian. If you're a child of God, you have not arrived yet, but you are being made pure. And and what you will be is not yet, but you are being made more like Jesus. That is what God is doing to make you pure if you're a Christian. He is making you a man or a woman who is more like Jesus in the way you think and act and speak and live. That should give us great hope. And John here is about to kind of have a bit of a hinge and take a turn because some are not children of God. And John writes, they are children of the devil. And it can actually often be difficult to spot. And just because you are sitting here in these pews, um, just because you are a member of a church, doesn't automatically mean that you're a child of God. Verse 4, he warns us and hopefully encourages us, maybe. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. 
Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. But God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Mm. It's a bit confronting, isn't it? What do we do with that? John, and I hope this is an encouragement in some way to you, he's saying you cannot claim to be a Christian, to be a child of God and live in continual rebellion and sin against God. He says you cannot practice sin. I think it's really important to understand that this practicing of sin It doesn't mean the slip-ups that you have on your way that God is working on you, but it's in fact a willful, habitual action, a willful rejection and active disobedience of God's law. In writing this, uh, John uh, had some opponents, some uh, people that were uh, leaving the church and coming up with false teaching and trying to draw people away. And they were people who basically said, um, we're going to ignore God's law. And so John's opponents were amoral, not immoral, but amoral. They said there is no morals, there is no law. And so they didn't see a problem with what they were doing. Their attitude, and I'm sure that you've never come across anyone with this attitude today at all, but their attitude basically was, well, it's not hurting anyone else. There's, there's, not, you know, there's no good, there's no bad, it's... It's amoral, it doesn't have morals. And John was writing to the church and, and people were being drawn away into this cult and this belief that, you know what, eh, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, do whatever you want. And John was writing them to them to actually show them, to confront them with that fact that there is no middle ground. There are no good or kind of basically good people We have this idea in our society and in our culture today of this, eh, if it's not hurting anyone, so what? We've all heard that. We have this idea that, well, you know, I'm basically a good person. There are no good people. There is Jesus and then there's everyone else. And so he was writing to confront them with this idea, you know what, if you make a practice of sinning, if you make a practice of willfully disobeying God's word and God's law, you obviously don't 
know him. You haven't seen him. You're not born of God. And we should find that pretty confronting. And it's a chance to pause and examine ourselves. What sins or what willful disobediences of God have I allowed to live in my life without confronting? Because again, none of us are perfect. But what are we willfully disobeying God in? Now, I want to be careful in addressing this text uh, because there is, uh, uh, you may or may not know, hopefully you don't know about this, but there is a, a heresy or a false teaching going around at the moment. Um, and I really am hesitant to kind of name names or movements or different things going on, but hey, I will, because why not? Um, but it's coming out of churches like Bethel, which has some great music and some things about that church are great. Uh, but their uh, pastor, Bill uh, Johnson and has written some things that kind of about this false teaching and more locally in Australia um, there's the Jesus School movement which kind of uh, edges into this teaching as well uh, and it's a false teaching that basically saying that Christians have no sin now. It's a teaching that says Christians have no sin now. And so you could kind of read that text that John wrote and think to yourself, oh man, I'm probably not a Christian because I'm still struggling with sin. And that's why I want to address this and name some names, not because I enjoy doing that, but because I want you to be aware. And this uh, false teaching really stems from an over-realized eschatology. And you're like, what does that mean? Anyway, um, it's important. It's basically looking to the end times and applying that now. Because John wrote, what we will be has not yet been revealed. He's making us righteous. He's making us pure. And this kind of false teaching brings what's in the future and says, no, that's now. And so we need to be aware of it because we will get downhearted and beat up on ourselves if we, like, well, you know, I'm still struggling in sin, but they said that I'm not a Christian if I struggle in sin. That's not what this is about. And so I actually don't want to rip on these people too much because they actually have great intentions and some of what they teach is really good um, because they want to promote holiness. They want to promote right living. And that's a really good thing to do. And they don't want to give people any excuse for sin. And I think that, again, is a really good thing to do. But the only problem is that they go further than Jesus does. And that's probably never a good idea. It's kind of what the Pharisees did in adding to God's law. Um, And so the reason I want to address this and bring this up is because this teaching can really only ever lead to pride or despair. If you are taught that you as a Christian are perfect in Jesus now uh, and they're therefore sinless, that can only lead to pride or despair because you can be full of pride and think, yeah, I did it, I don't have any sin. Or perhaps despair and think to yourself, I do sin and I am struggling and so perhaps I'm not a Christian and then doubt your faith. And so you need to know that what we are talking about in this text is not perfectionism in and of yourself. We're not talking about that. John isn't saying that if you ever sin, you're no longer a Christian. John is not saying that. um, Let me me kind of prove to you that that's what he's saying because in this very same book in uh, 1 John 1.8, he says this. He says, if we say we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he can't be saying that because he himself has just said, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. So he's not saying that you have no sin. What he's saying is that you can't be a Christian and practice sin. Your life cannot be defined by sin. As you're a Christian and Jesus has so radically changed who you are that you cannot be in right relationship with him and continually sin without any change or transformation. And what this looks like will be different for different people. Like, I don't know about you, but I didn't become a Christian and then the next week somehow find a halo and, and put it on and all of a sudden I was a bright shining star. We're all on different points in that journey towards the perfection we have in Christ. And so what that looks like will be different for different people, but it's about the trajectory of your life, where you're heading. Those who are in Christ cannot help but change and become more like him as we behold him and see him as he is. And so we're encouraged to to walk in the light. So we read in in 1 John 1, 6-7, if we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. And so we're encouraged to not make a practice of sinning here. And it's it's kind of like this big idea, is that when the lights come on, when faith comes to us, when God saves us and we see life as it is, if we are truly saved, we won't want to make a practice of sinning. If we have truly seen Jesus, we will want to make a practice of righteousness. And so I would encourage you, uh, especially in a church full of sinful and broken people, uh, to, to not judge the purity of your life or of others' lives by looking at each other, but by looking at Jesus. Because if you start judging the purity of your own life by looking at others, again, it will lead to pride or despair because you'll be like, you know what? I must be pure because at least I'm not doing what that guy's doing. Or you'll look at someone like Tran and think, you know what? I'm not serving the way he's serving. I'm not loving the way he's loving. I mustn't be a Christian. I like to pick on Tran. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> Probably because he sits in the front, but you should sit in the front too. <laughs> don't judge the purity of your life by looking at others, but by looking at Jesus. This is the, the challenge of this passage for us, and I think the way John puts us you know, uh, in this, and you know, God loves us and we are his children, We should ask ourselves, if God the Father has become our Father and if Jesus is our big brother saviour, do we have any family resemblance? Am I being transformed into his likeness? Because if you are a Christian and you are in Christ, you will not be perfect tomorrow. In fact, you will not be perfect until Jesus comes again and what we are, what we will be, will be revealed. But am I being transformed into his likeness? 
Is there evidence in my life of me becoming more like my Heavenly Father, more like my big brother, Saviour Jesus? How then do we deal with our sin? Well, thankfully, we, we have an advocate with the Father. We have Jesus. And so we deal with our sin by confessing it, by giving it to Jesus. And we remind ourselves that God is so much better than anything the world could have to offer. Only when we see Jesus as he really is, only when we see Jesus for who he really is, for how precious and wonderful and beautiful he is, will we want to choose him. And in fact, the the lie of the world is this, is that anything or anyone or anything the world could have to offer could be better than Jesus. The only reason we ever choose sin, the only reason we ever choose to willfully disobey God is because we forget who Jesus is and what he has for us. And so if we want to put away sin in our lives, what we really need to do is see more of Jesus, see more of who he is. You can't will yourself to give up sin the way someone might be able to will themselves to give up smoking. But what you can do is continually see more of Jesus and more of how much more wonderful he is than any other sin could be. I shouldn't say other sin, but any sin could be. Jesus is not a sin. Just want to clarify that. So, what I want to encourage you is that we can presume upon God for salvation in Christ because He's promised it to us, but we shouldn't act like we presume upon it. Neither should we despair of our sin. Rather, we find our confidence in Jesus and His work on the cross for us. So how do we prepare for the day of his his return as his children? We abide in him, live in him, see more of him and allow that to transform us. It's the only thing that works because in him only is the power to change as he makes us more and more like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so good to us, ill-deserving, undeserving people that we are, and that in your love you chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in you, that you gifted us your Son who gifts us his righteousness, and then, in fact, you go beyond that and you gift us to be in your family. We pray we would never, ever, ever meh on that, but would always be blown away by the depth of the riches of your grace and mercy to us. We pray that we would see more of you, which would make us love more of you, which would help us to love less the things of the world. We pray that you would transform us for your glory, for your good, Amen.
Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.